0: Welcome to another episode of Mission and Meaning. For this final episode of this school year, we have a special episode with our three deans from both sides of campus. And they're going to be sharing about their work with uh, restorative practices this year. Thank you all for joining us for this month's podcast episode. And so I just want to make sure we have a moment for each of you to introduce yourselves. So, uh, Kurt, I'll hand it over to you.
1: I'm Kurt Peterson. I'm the Dean of Students and Community Life for the seventh and eighth grade.
2: I'm Wendy Crydell. I'm the Dean of Students of Community Life for the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade.
3: And I am Lamar Quattlebaum Dean of Students of the high school, so ninth through twelfth grade.
0: All right, thanks everyone. As we prepared for this podcast, we came up with a few questions just to help you all share about your experiences and. A little bit about your beliefs too. So before we get going, I do want to just remind our audience of some of the foundational beliefs and understandings of restorative practices, which is guiding our work at this school. So first, we believe that every person is at their core good and that never changes. Whatever a person may or may not do, a person remains good, and we, we see a person as such. Another one of the core beliefs of restorative practices is that every person has a need to be in healthy relationships and in community with others. Also, each person carries wisdom. They carry knowledge, so each person is able to understand the impacts of their actions. Even if they might not be aware of the impacts when they're committing those actions. And also each person, given their wisdom and their goodness, is able to contribute to a process of repair and prevention when things do go wrong. And finally, people thrive and are most successful when they're in an environment with both high expectations and accountability, and also when they're supported by others. And before we talk about how restorative practices has been shaping up on both sides of campus, I just wanted to offer you all a moment to share, like, given those beliefs, are there any that particularly resonate with you, whether with you uh, as a human being or with your work with students? So it's actually been a core
3: belief, uh, at least my office. It's something that I actually wholeheartedly believe, and I've always started with that. But I'd also add every person deserves forgiveness, but also that every person has the capacity to forgive. So I think when I think about core goodness in people, that's part of my belief also. So with the things that I deal with, a lot of times it's kids backed into a corner and they're either taking a shortcut or they have really poor judgment. And so we start with, this is probably not your core being that's doing this. This is something that you need to learn how to handle pressure or back in the corner or something like that. So, yeah, it's a core belief. And I think it's always been something we started with in the dean's office. But now it's actually given full language with the restorative practices.
2: You know, what what I find is restorative practices give a voice for the underdog. You know, I think a lot of times kids make mistakes in judgment that maybe directly impact themselves or them as a learner. But I think where I see these practices shine is when another person is hurt. And I think the ability to repair harm when someone's behavior impacts, whether it's another student or a teacher or a group of kids, I I think that leaving a space for that repair to take place is, you know, what's most impactful to me.
1: I mean, these answers were fantastic, and there's not a lot left that I feel like is missing. But one thing that I feel like I would emphasize that is kind of threaded through all of this is the the goal to create people with empathy. And I don't think that's necessarily a naturally occurring piece. I think people need to take care of themselves, and they need to have you know, their needs met, which is very important, but we also want more from them. And that that last kind of foundational understanding about You know surrounding them with both high expectations and accountability is part of that and i think is to make them go beyond just are you good how are you making everyone else better how are you taking care of everyone else around you whether it's your teachers or your other classmates i think all of restorative practices works really well when all of that layers on top of itself so you're having a systematic approach to be able to help children become the best version of themselves
0: yeah. Thanks, Kurt. And something I appreciate about all three of your responses is that it really strives to see each of our students as, as a full human, a human capable of so much good, like what you said, Kurt, in terms of empathy that is connected to others. And that's part of our work with students, too. And within a school setting, restorative practices often serve three purposes. One, to build community. So building community often through sharing and listening circles. Restorative practices can also offer a process for a community or a group like a classroom to share about their values and to collectively create norms and agreements. And I know that's something that's been happening in a lot of uh, elementary spaces this year. And finally, when conflict or harm does occur and it's inevitable, we're all human and we're learning and working and living together, restorative practices offers a way to help repair that harm, repair relationships, and to prevent future moments to occur. And so this year, we've begun this process to more explicitly integrate these practices as a way to live out our goals and criteria and to build community and belonging. And at the same time, as Lamont's mentioned, it's been a part of a lot of our thinking for a long time. So my next question is, What aspects of restorative practices have been a part of your work with students and how do they reflect our sacred heart values and philosophy?
2: One of the things specifically at the lower school that's actually been happening for, um, I don't actually have the exact number of years, but I would say at least the past six or seven, they use a, a way of learning called responsive classroom. And there is curriculum that goes with it, but it is very much a philosophy of teaching that involves all of the pieces of restorative justice without naming them in that way. So, you know, setting up their classroom with a set of norms, you know, starting every day with a circle, ending every day with a circle. And when there is conflict, they it is very much a restorative lens in which these conflicts get solved. That doesn't mean it's perfect in every case and scenario. But I think that the classroom teachers, those core teachers, have a really great sense of setting the groundwork for all of these things that have just become part of the thread in the middle school in a more common, commonplace way.
3: Yeah, I, I could piggyback on that. We've used a lot of conflict resolution, and I guess it would be considered a restorative circle, but oftentimes when students have some kind of conflict, usually I will have a contract. Each student comes into my office and each has an opportunity to have an advocate with them, an adult advocate. And then we just you know, started off like, what happened? Was there harm? Who caused harm? Was there harm both ways? How do we work through moving forward, setting a set of norms between these two people? And we worked that through in this conflict resolution meeting. And we put kind of the, the results on paper and each person signs the contract. And then hopefully we move forward with everybody understanding how to kind of make sure that this doesn't happen again. And I think it is a core and a foundation of our values at Sacred Heart. When you look at our goals and criteria, like everybody being a part of a community and everybody having the right to be a part of the community, and how do we make sure that everyone's rights are met? So that is a core value of our of our school.
1: Connecting to these two ideas that we've already talked about, and and talking about the goals and criteria. In the middle school especially, the goals and criteria are kind of introduced to a lot of students. Half of our middle schoolers are from different schools. It's the first experience they've had with the goals and criteria. And even in lower school, we talk about something called the code of the heart. It's a little bit of a a more straightforward version of that. The goals and criteria are a little more adult or just an older student. So we kind of teach them as a foundational piece. And you think about restorative practices in the tree that exists. The restorative practices that we kind of focus a lot on in the middle school is is the roots. And our goals and criteria are those roots. It's very foundational to who we are and what we expect our students to be able to be. And we don't expect them to be perfect at that. So we, we really kind of teach about this is, this is what we're hoping for you and we will help you get there. At the same time, in that same aspects that Lamont was mentioning with the conflict resolution, we do that as well with restorative practices. One of the biggest turns, and we've mentioned this a little already, but the idea of you know, the impact of your actions versus your intention of impact that transition to focus almost completely on the impact and not worry. And we don't spend much time on like what you meant to happen. There's a lot of stuff in middle school, like, oh, I was just joking. I didn't mean that. I was just trying to keep it light, understandable, but how did that land? How did it impact others? And using that as a basis of helping build that empathy that we mentioned earlier is super paramount to that. So I feel like just globally with Sacred Heart, there's a lot of really awesome stuff that we've done for a long time. And I feel like restorative practices has been this really good lens or approach to be able to connect all of the things we already
3: do really well with common language that we can use throughout all our divisions. You know, we use intent versus impact like so much. And I'm, I'm glad Kurt brought that up because I think if we go back to the core value that everyone is inherently good. So we do strongly believe most of the time it was not ill intent, but it doesn't change what the impact is for someone else or for the situation, whatever it is. And I think we're always constantly talking to kids about intent versus impact.
0: Yeah, I appreciated all those responses so much. And again, like what's striking me as I'm listening to this is how much each of you cares for the whole student, the whole child. Like what you said, Lamont, reiterating that we do believe in the goodness of a child, right? And so as part of that, as you and and Kurt said, then it's not about intent. We're not saying you're a bad person or you meant harm. And at the same time, someone might have been hurt in a situation. So what's really important is how do we work together to help people move forward, to repair relationships in the ways that we can. And I think that's really important is oftentimes restorative practices, it's often focused just on the, on the discipline part when things have gone wrong. But really in a school setting, Kurt, what you mentioned about the roots, what's uh, below ground, but what's also actually providing the, the structure for everything, that's the most important. And so um, we call those the tier one practices, building community and setting norms. But for us as a school, it's a whole thing. It's not just for a moment of harm. But I do want to talk about the tier three part of restorative practices, which is a response to to harm, um, and this year something that's been really great is both sides of campus. We've been a bit more intentional about the process when harm occurs, and also aligning some of those practices with restorative justice, but also with one another. So I'm going to review to our listeners the key elements of a of a tier three restorative, uh, let's call it a sort of conference or restorative response when harm has occurred. So really when, when harms occurred, you want everyone who's been involved, either someone who's been identified as having committed the harm or received the harm directly or indirectly to have a chance to describe what's happened based on their role in the incident. And really at this point, we're not looking for a single story, but knowing that different people given their positions, their roles in the community have different experiences of what's happened and each person's perspective experience is really important and the next step is to ask the student what they were thinking and feeling at the moment the next step is to ask them what they've been thinking and feeling since oftentimes in the moment they might not be noticing certain things but as hours or even days go by they're, they're processing and then from there to ask the students to describe who may have been impacted by the incident whether it's themselves or other people in the community. Knowing that things happen in the community, there are ripples that reach outward. And then the final step is to ask the people who are involved what needs to be done to repair the harm to the extent that it can be repaired, and then to prevent future occurrences. And like I said, what's been really encouraging for me is that these set of questions are both pretty straightforward and also really, really powerful. And so a question I wanted to as the three of you are, during this past year, what are some of the changes that you've been seeing in student culture and behavior or in how educators, so not just the students, but the educators are also viewing and working with students?
2: Well, I was going to say, I don't know that I've necessarily seen a ton of change in students and how they're necessarily behaving or thinking, but I do think there is a very deliberate adult response to how we are reacting or managing or taking care of a situation when when there is student ill behavior, and depending upon you know the severity would depend, or depending on the number of people impacted, would depend on the size and, and the uh, the number of interactions for that. So you know if it were a one-on-one situation, you know a student said something off-color to another student in class or just said it out loud and offended a student, the teacher, we're hoping that they will handle that or at least make mention immediately and then talk with the students afterwards privately, or if not, can pull them, if they can pull them, have a more of a conversation then. But sometimes the impact of a, of a comment in class might actually have an impact to the whole class. So therefore, that might take a little bit more time, maybe a comment saying, you know, we're going to meet and have a conversation about this. We're going to have a circle next class. And it starts the cycle of making sure you're preparing the students, having the adults ready to lead a circle and uh, move from there.
3: Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. I have a couple of things. Um, one, to her statement, I see a lot more, and I know it happens in middle school purposely a lot more, but I'm seeing a lot more in the high school responses coming from the actual classroom teachers. So having restorative circles, with that realizing they're actually having a restorative circle, if that makes sense. And trying to handle things when and where it happened instead of, I need to report you to the dean. And that's helping a lot because I think the shift I have noticed, and this could be COVID or not, I'm not 100% sure, is community experience has definitely changed. Kids are having a harder time being with each other, getting used to the norms of actually how they, even in the lunchroom, right? Just because they were isolated for so long, I think, but also there's societal changes as well. So the fact that they're struggling with how to even be in a normal teenage community is interesting, but I think it's definitely something that we have to be deliberate in trying to create and help nurture so they can kind of Catch up that gap that may have affected them negatively when it comes to community
1: to to kind of like talk about the middle school lens too, I think, as Wendy said, there's been a lot of buy in from teachers and and as Lamont was saying too, that the need to be able to kind of help these students along and help them kind of learn how to interact with each other. And there's definitely some holdover from COVID, but really, I would say yes, and there's also just the de- de- developmental stuff that they don't necessarily know how to interact with each other. And the thing that I, I don't want to contradict Wendy, but I would say I think there is some student buying in a very specific way. I think they're bought into the process. I think they're open to it. I don't think it's shocking when we say, hey, let's, even when you're building community, we let's circle up, let's talk about this. They're okay with that format. They get it. And you say like, hey, would you be okay with having someone into this to be able to talk about the impact that, that landed on you? They're not surprised by that question. They they know what that means. They know what it'll feel like. It might be in a more emotional situation now because it's, it's they're emotionally invested because something happened to them, but they kind of, they're with the process. They're op- more open to it. So I think that normalizing of using this process and using this language is not a shock to anybody honestly it it was a little bit to both adults and students when we first opened it up and now it feels ubiquitous it feels like it's a part of who we are now which is great
2: well and I totally agree with what you're saying my thinking was has their behavior changed they're still cute right so (laughs) yes I agree I think they now the, the response they are accustomed to our response or whether it's their teacher or whether it's I think they, they're open to it. I think that they are more prepared for those things to happen, but I'm not sure, if anything, more to what Lamont's saying. I think that it is really hard for them to figure out their place in the world and even in this little tiny world they're in. And if someone's a loud, domin- dominating personality, they're louder. And if they're a quiet, more you know passive person, they are even more so. And having them in one space sometimes can, it can be a lot, and and in that space again
3: without with that gap of adjusting and how to like notice mm-hmm. and how to live okay. within that space, I think there was a gap that there was a miss, and now they they rather choose to actually just be quiet. I mean, there's sometimes I go into a high school cafeteria and. Instead of talking, and now this can be something else with phones, cell phones, and the whole deal. But instead of talking to each other, it's like, what's well, easier just kind of Instagram or whatever the heck they do. And that's, that definitely is a shift. You're right, kids don't change. They're, they're, it's, it's always gonna be that same developmentally, like what happens. But I think that gap changed where that transition happens. Like where you think it's happening in middle school, late in the middle school years, it's actually now happening in high school.
0: I appreciate so much of uh, what the three of you shared. And I think even even the name restorative process, again, uh, our attention might go to restoring or repairing something when it's gone wrong. But a lot of the meaning of, of that name restorative practices or restoring our ability to be human. And again, knowing that we as humans always have a need for one another. So there are circumstances that might make that more difficult including conflict, including a pandemic, including the use of technology. But this is really a set of tools that really helps us restore a community uh, and being with one another. And Wendy, I like what you said too, and I know Lamont, you echoed it. Also powerful for the educators because you really wanna give the individuals who are closest to a situation their own tools. And the confidence in knowing that the tools that they're using, even if something has to be elevated, for example, to the deans or even to your director of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. We're actually going to go through the same process, right? Because we're confident in it and, and it's powerful.
3: Yeah, I'd like to add one other thing because you, you talked about what's changed. I, I do think language has changed. Language is powerful, right? I mean, not, not to put you two on, on, on the spot, but I'm not sure what happens, but I think I do have an idea. Like we don't use the word discipline that much anymore. It's like response- accountability. That's a huge culture shift, but it does actually give it a different approach to the situation. As soon as a kid hears discipline, they freeze, freak out, close in, and how hard is it to actually then build and restore? But when they hear accountable or they hear response, they seem to be a little more willing to start having a conversation on like, I'm not in trouble level. So I think that has changed a bit as well.
2: I think it's a little harder when they're younger because they see that having to have a conversation even if it isn't punitive in nature the fact that they have to have a conversation with somebody else so if their teacher does and which again back to your case in point is like handled right away by the person who experienced whatever was happening is obviously the best scenario but if they get removed and then have to talk with somebody else, the goal will be the same on our part, but in their minds, sometimes it is hard for them not to see, Ooh, I'm in trouble. I have to go talk to Miss Crydell or, you know, so I do think that's a mindset change. And again, developmentally, a high school kid can understand that a little bit better, but I think again, the language is what's incredibly powerful.
1: No, I agree. And then the same on that same vein in the middle school as well. There's that idea of bringing that language into the classroom on a regular basis. It normalizes the idea of having a difficult conversation. It gives you that framework and the lens to think about that. And it still happens when a student sees me come into the room. They're like, am I in trouble? What did they do? It's like, no, no. I literally just needed like a recording for graduation. You're not in trouble. There's something like that would will happen. And there's still more to work on in that sense, where they they still think trouble is having a conversation. And I think there's still processes we're in the process of adopting and and layering this through our whole system to, you know, as the one said, use the word discipline less and focus on personal growth and those connections and the restoration. And I think that's, that's always a work in progress because the bottom line is we get new sixth graders from other schools that haven't learned this. And we get new ninth graders from other schools that haven't learned this. it's going to be continuous. And I think it's, it's a welcome problem to have to tackle. I think we're, we're, we're open to it.
0: And I think like what all three of you mentioned, where the process is important. And so we're implementing or making more consistent a process across all parts of the school. And there's also the, the language or, or the cultural shift that is also happening, too. And another distinction I find really helpful from restorative practices is that we don't want to do something to a student. So that would be punitive or a traditional model of discipline the dean or the person in authority disciplines does something to the student. We don't wanna do something for the student, right? But really we wanna do something with the student.
3: It's working with you or working with the family.
0: But I always start off
3: conversations, whether it's with a family or a student, that at some point there is some accountability to be had. What that looks like, we don't know yet because we're gonna work with you. but to still have them understand in the end, which this is the shift. This is the hardest part to say like, yes, restoring doesn't mean repairing and walking away all the time. There could be repair account, be accountable and walk away altogether. And I think that's, that's actually something that, that takes some time, right? Cause we do want to be mindful that the most important part is restoring it. That takes work. That's not easy.
0: And so my last question for you all, since uh, we've actually shifted to talking about families, is how can families be in partnership in sharing this work, whether it's through using a different kind of language or framework and asking their students different kinds of questions? But how can we, knowing that we're all working together in the life of a child, how can we all work together on this?
3: I think one is, is helping families get to a point of understanding the process, but also helping giving them the language and giving them the initiative to, to help with conversations with their student. Like to not end it in school, right? To continue it, helping that student in the growth process of that restorative practice and actually really having open and direct communication with parents, however many conversations that takes, right? Like not just, here's what happened, I'll call you and then we'll see you later. But more, hey, if you need to talk to me a couple more times this week or revisit next month after the mm, the restorative process has already taken place, but how is this kid doing now? Because a lot of times we're, <laughs> I always say, a lot of times in a dean's job, you're dealing with 5% of the population 100% of the time. So you have to find time to actually revisit some of the things that you've moved on from because something else has happened, that can take place with the family.
2: I think too the even these five questions that we talk about utilizing, you know, when some when harm has taken place, I think again for them to be able to ask these questions and actually listen to what their you know child is saying without being defensive, which I think is really hard. You know, I think it's it's easier if your child has been harmed. You know, oh, what happened to my child? Who did this to my child? I want to fix this for my child. Versus if their child was the person that did some harm, not my child. It couldn't have been them. They would never do these things. And I think instead of taking either place just to listen and and ask the same questions that, that we do of someone, again, who has been harmed or is, has been the harmer, to get a, an open sense of, like, what happened and then help them come to a place, whether it's what do they need for repair to be made to them or what type of repair should they be striving to do?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I agree with all of that. And I also think this is an area of growth for us as a school, and I don't want to speak for all divisions at all the time, but I feel like there is a gap with our parent community in that they don't necessarily have the training with restorative practices that we have been able to be blessed with. And by that, I mean, I think there's some easy stuff that we can do to solve some of this. In the beginnings of the year, we have PA, Parent Association meetings. We can talk about using I language, I statements, talking about how you feel, and, and you can it kind of gets to your impact, and we talk about why. We talked about the restorative practice lens that we focus on at school, where we are holding them high accountability, but also providing a lot of an encouragement and nurturing. So we're providing that authoritative, restorative place we're not trying to be punitive and not trying to be permissive, but also we are teaching them about what we're doing here and not when their kid's in trouble. This is just like, this is how we have, you know, this is a good dinner time conversation. I know we, we are doing that, but I feel like we wanna get to more parents. And like I said before, we have new parents every year. We gotta keep doing this. We have to keep providing opportunities for parents to work together to talk about how this common language has worked at home. So if something, God forbid, were to go wrong and there were to be conflict, the parents aren't surprised by the language that we're using, the processes we have in place, because they know them. They've they've been onboarded. They're connected to the parent community in that. And I don't think necessarily we're doing that poorly. I just think there's always room to grow. And I think we need to keep pushing in those directions to keep our parent community on the same page so they can really, truly partner with us. I know a lot of families are open to it, but we give them, this is what it means to be a partner in this way. And here's here's
3: you know, follow this game plan. We're gonna to try to make it easy for you. Hearing what Wendy said, I think that's paramount. Like having parents understand when their student is the one that's caused the harm. That's I think the most work we have to do with families. And understandably, cause they take it to even another level of our restorative language, that every student is inherently good. We'll think about it from a parent's perspective. My son or daughter, like they would never do something like that. We don't teach our kids this kind of thing. This is not how we raise our kids. But that goes back to the restorative language again, intent versus impact. Yeah, we we actually in agreement with you that your child would not intend on this kind of harm. But that doesn't change the impact on someone else. And harm was done, at least in that other person's perspective.
2: Well, and that we still love their child too. So it, do, it doesn't make them a bad person. They just either made a bad decision or a bad choice or, you know, unintentionally hurt somebody. And maybe sometimes with intention.
1: People want like, well, I'll just apologize. And that, but, you know, I was like, apologies are great, but this process is really helpful to help everybody understand the work that needs to be involved to make it better, to make it right and that, that's, that's part of it, too. It's like, well, what do I need to do? I, I, I'm so sad, I'm upset. I can't believe I caused this harm, but what do I do? This really helps us follow that process. That, I think, is where a lot of its power lies in how do we re- rebuild our community.
0: Restorative processes aren't just for the people who have been harmed. It is also for the person who has caused harm. We don't ever want anyone to feel vilified canceled or disposed on campus, that's also not care. And so part of this process is to, to give space for the person who's caused harm or who was initially identified to offer their story, to hear the perspectives of others, to go through their own thinking Huh, what was I thinking at that moment? What have I been thinking about since? Right. So these questions are just as much for them. I and mean, something that I've been struck to is I've been going to different trainings. One workshop I went to said that individuals who have caused harm and the individuals who have received harm often actually have very similar needs, because we are in relationship with one another. Oftentimes, both individuals feel alienated, feel disconnected whether because harm was done to them and that caused a rift in their sense of belonging or community, or someone who might have caused harm might feel, again, vilified, might feel like they don't know where they stand in the community anymore. And so this process is for, actually, for all people, which I think is really important. And I appreciate what you said, Kurt, about training. And as consistent as we can be for a young person, that's just going to make these kinds of experiences whether to repair harm or building community, all the more powerful. This takes us to, to the end. I wanna honor it. our deans are very busy and so they have other responsibilities. Yeah. So this is the end of our podcast episode, and I just wanted to give you all like such genuine thanks for being guests. I think this is such a really lovely way to end this podcast series. Also, I will say, as I was listening to all your responses, I was thinking about those core beliefs of restorative practices and how actually each of you embodies them as as human beings and as also our deans working with our young people. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your clear wisdom that you've shared today. And thank you for caring about community. And this concludes another episode of Mission and Meaning. If you have any questions or thoughts, please reach out directly to me, Ben Sue, at bsu at shschools.org. Or contact the Office of Mission, Culture, and Strategy at omcs at shschools.org.